the CFC. CFC, the classic film channel. We have 35 movies Joan Crawford showed up in to clear her debts. And maybe then again, it will show you Mildred Pierce. If you're lucky, if you're a good little boy, we have the power. CFC, be a good boy for mommy. One of my favorite scenes is probably when Billy's character has his first service at the bat. I'm sorry, what? His first service. At bat? I think you should know this. If you didn't already, I know absolutely nothing about sports. And you... Finish your sentence. And you chose to make... Yes, I chose to make a sports film. James Cameron was never on the Titanic. Peter Jackson never fucked the Hobbit. But you don't call him a flagrant plagiarist. I didn't call you a flagrant plagiarist. So we understand each other. You know, when they told me this was going to be hosted by some young chick, I had my worries. Out of Bounds, the true story of a true Hollywood true disaster. Episode 3, First Service at Bat. The first day of production on Fresh Balls was June 3rd and would later be cited as the hottest day that Florida had recorded in over 20 years. I talked with a local woman about that day. Yeah, it was hot. However, what would soon rear its head would be one of the most cataclysmic tornadoes Florida had ever seen. We talked with a local man about the tornado. Yeah, it was pretty bad. The tornado would hit at 6.35 p.m., but there was a whole day of production nightmares before then. We called it the storm before the storm. <laughs> Get it? The day began some 12 hours earlier. 6.35 a.m. The cameras and crew began arriving at the Dumont Tennis Club around then. Gerhard Roth, at this time, had been the controlling manager and proprietor of the Dumont Tennis Club for close to 20 years. Prior to that, his father set up the club in the early 40s when his family fled Germany during the war. My family fled Germany for the explicit reason that we didn't like how the war was going. Mainly that we were losing. So we packed up our bags and headed to America. So you weren't fleeing Jews? Oh. I've been trying to get away from them my entire life. They're the reason our club went under in the first place, in the first couple of years. Why was that? Well, apparently Florida is filled with them, and we had an explicit no-Jews-allowed policy. And so we really had no members for a very long time. And that's the Jews' fault? We repealed it when we lost the war. We? Them, sure. As you can probably tell, Roth was not the most welcoming of sorts. At his best, he was a rather prickly and arrogant man, and at his worst, he was a Nazi. Lucio had signed the contract with Roth for full usage of the Dumont Club before and after opening hours, never during. The cameras and crew arrived as soon as the patrons did. Roth was already furious. I know from our initial meetings that Mr. Lepine was to be a rather carnivorous individual, and one that I would bristle with, most certainly. 
However, I never quite grasped to what extent he would completely devastate my club and ignore every word I ever said to him. I discussed Roth with Lapine. Lapine was frank. I hated the Nazi bastard. Didn't even hide him. You seen the topiary in the bushes? The hedges? What about them? Who are you, Helen Keller? Upon closer inspection, or rather, just looking at them, it became very apparent that the majority, or rather, all of the hedges and the like around the Dumont Tennis Club were fashioned into swastikas. Much of the horrid history of racism at the Dumont Tennis Club, however, was blown away in the tornado that would close out the first day of production. Later in life, Roth would go on to be a political advisor for a president, whose name, well, you know who it was. However, sometime after the cameras arrived, so did the other cameras. Lucio had invited an entire press team to chronicle the first day of filming. 7.05 a.m. It was gonna be a good idea. It was a good idea. If there wasn't any issues, then it, it would have been an incredible idea. Nobody wants to say that, but it's the truth. Like the Titanic. If it didn't sink, nobody would have said a damn thing. But 50 Irish people die? Boo-hoo. Lucio, more than 50 Irish people died on the Titanic. Uh, not the Titanic. Down in Florida. One of our fireworks backfired. We blew up a bus transporting river dancers. The river dance bus disaster was you? Not directly. By the time the reporters were ready and in place, the wind had already begun to pick up. Racist tennis club owner, Gerhard Roth. I could tell the wind was different. There's an old German saying, for bekomme ich einen gottverdammten Schlitz in Kesseme hair. Which means? Not a clue. Lucio had set up a full buffet for the press team and had given them full access to whatever part of the set they wished to photograph. They had also hired bartenders from Zidane's to serve cocktails to the reporters, as well as the crew and as well as the cast. Possibly not the best idea on a set of unhinged substance abusers. Shirley Pisser was a reporter who was there that day. She remembers the cocktail menu. Pisser. Well, Lucio had this deal with Burt Reynolds to promote his new tequila brand. So all the drinks were tequila based. You know, your tequila sunrises, your tequila and tonics, your tequila down under, which was just a can of Australian beer, which the person would pop at the top, then flip and chung the thing, whilst the bartender would knife a hole into the bottom of the can, fashioning a funnel, and pour neat tequila through the beer can until all the beer was drank, and the person was now chugging tequila. Then you would have to eat a lime. Pisser remembers quite a lot of that, actually. I was actually an assistant for another cameraman, so my job was to record all of the audio. These audio tapes have not been heard in over 40 years. Today, Pisser has given us full access. All candid audio you hear in this episode is real conversations recorded by Pisser from that very day. It's the real stories, the truth of that. Hey, Cheryl, can you... Stop talking like that. Talking like what? That's kind of my thing. What is? Doing the whole making boring things sound compelling thing. You do you, uptight bitch. What was that? Why don't you just go back to what you do best? 
7.45 a.m. The French sex fiend was nowhere to be found, which was fun. After all, he's the director, so why should he be there on the first day? Easily bribed hack Richard Fonde was there that day. I was one of Lucio's reporters for the day, which again was an easy job. I was there when he did the same stunt for Return of the Jedi. Lucio produced Return of the Jedi. Oh no, he hired a bunch of reporters to come to a fake woods outside of the set. Then he hired a bunch of little people to be kids and gave them cameras so they looked like Lucas was only using no-pay child labor. Lucas found out and him and Lucio struck a deal, got some bear outfits, and uh, that's how Ewoks came to be. Maurice Lupe was nowhere to be found and nobody had any idea where he was. Lucio started getting angry on set. Where is that French frog fuck? Where is that Parisian prick? I want him here right now. I want him here right now. I managed to stay calm for a very long time and requested for people to find Maurice in a very level-headed manner. You know, that's all a producer has to do is keep calm and collect... Ah. Which inbred baby made this fucking coffee? It's cold! It's been sat there for an hour. Oh, look at you. Plight of the working man. Why don't you pay them better if you care so much? I'm getting paid scale, and then I get points on the back end. Oh, yeah, because that's where the money is. Podcast. See you on your yacht. It was around this time that Milton Hopkins arrived on set. This was to be the first time that Milton came to really understand to what extent the Oscar bait trauma drama he had signed on for had become a body sex comedy. Helena Naiman was Milton's wife at the time of filming. The problem was that this was the first time Milton saw how much had changed. He was in Spain for two years, practicing tennis and breaking his legs and going through reconstructive surgery to get into the character of Stephen Curtis. So he hadn't read any of the new drafts. He'd learned the final draft of the drama some two years ago. And as much as Milton was a swell actor if you gave him five years to get a role, he was not a spontaneous man. Actually, I don't know if he was a good actor. He just took so long and did so much that he became the person. It was weird for me, because in the space of six years, I'd had sex with George Washington, a paraplegic tennis player and the Chinese philosopher Confucius, for a film that went under before they even trod a frame. I never really once went to bed with Milton. There was one sad hand job one night, but he kept crying and saying, can I be Washington again? I said, no. Then he said, how about Confucius? And he did the voice and it was not subtle. Immediately, the Brit was on my ass. Doesn't he understand how money works? Those studio comedies used to print money. Here I am, trying to make us all a buck, and he wants to win another Oscar. Oscars don't get you money. People don't care about prestige. I, I like the movie, The Prestige. Who was in that? I can't remember. He was this huge jacked man. But the Oscars, what a shanda, boo-hoo. It's a documentary about war slum kids making a bicycle. Give it every award. I saw a fucking movie the other day. Oh, my God. I saw a movie the other day where Maggie Gyllenhaal's brother was a gay cowboy. What the fuck is this? Then I saw a movie where there were ten gay cowboys. That last one I found out very quickly was just a porno. But I have this thing where if I start something... 
I have to finish it. So I watched the whole thing, and the plot was not great, but there was a couple of the guys who were real pros, you know, real kings. They took it good, but also they gave back. It was symbiotic. He was a real power bottom. Then there were a couple of bears, and they really knew what they were doing. They, like, tossed around a couple of these fresh twink boys, and they were not the same from the start of the film that they were in the end. It was a real beautiful arc and a really great story. What was I saying? Milton Hopkins. Yeah, Milton Hopkins is an asshole. Where is the producer? The draft is puerile. This is not the story of Stephen Curtis. What do you mean? Have you not read this yet, Stephen? Read what? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there wasn't a wet t-shirt contest in your first draft, was there? Where is Lapine? The subject of the film, or at least parts of it, Stephen Curtis. Uh, I don't think there was a single part of me that believed that Lapine would do something this absolutely immoral in regards to telling my story. I knew there'd be a joke in there or two. I knew that a lot of the tennis would be cut. I knew that my vision was a stark and uncompromising one that would be hard for many to grasp with its complexities and manner. However, no, I don't have any words. He's the most cynical, depraved, vulgar animal I've ever met. I thought you said you didn't have any words. I wouldn't antagonize your interview, Daisy. How the hell did you get in here, pisser? I just thought I would come by and see how things were going. Yeah, everything's fine. 8.20 a.m. Lucio was trying his best at this point to avoid Stefan at any cost. What are you doing? I'm just recording. Get the hell out of my recording booth. Can I say the times? No! Alright, you don't have to be a bitch about it. 8.20 a.m. Lucio was trying his best at this point to avoid Stephen. I already said that part. Your name is Pisser. 8.21 a.m. Lucio is still trying to avoid Stephen at all costs. He was nowhere to be found. Maurice was nowhere to be found. It was getting ridiculous, really. It was going to be a huge pain, and we had a movie to make. So yeah, I hid, usually in places with lots of stairs. That's where I thought I'd have the best advantage. Milton was furious. He called me on the telephone and told me what had happened. I wasn't too surprised. I'd known somewhat of Lapine's antics on film sets and had actually told Milton all of this, but this was when he was hiring veterans to shoot him in the same places where Stephen was shot, so his mind was on other things. Stephen would film these painful experiments for records and would introduce himself and say what was going to happen. Hello, I'm Milton Hopkins and this is Getting Shot in the Leg. Later in life, some man named Johnny took the whole idea and made millions. Milton never saw a dime. Until, of course, he starred in the fourth film. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville, and we're here with Academy Award-winning actor Milton Hopkins. Good day, chaps. Hello, wee man. Steve-o. And this, this is the rear entry. You're gonna put that whole thing up there. Seemed like a good idea at the time. 9.54 a.m. Have some rewrites. So oh, here we go. Harriet Lumet, Barbara Hooper chronicler. Barbara was very well known for coming in in her first day and suddenly having a page one rewrite in hand. Often it was more of a bargaining tool to get paid more. I'll go back to your script for a pay rise. Or sometimes it was a genuine burst of creative energy. This was somewhere in between. 
Barbara was going through a rough time personally and recently her third husband run off with a young and attractive model. The long and short of it was that Barbara wanted to show that she still had the goods. You wanted a full frontal shower scene? In layman's terms, yes. Is this new dialogue? Despite Lapine's attempts to simply pay Hooper off through threats of financial debauchery and violence, the dialogue and shower scene was filmed later that week and did make its way into the film. Oh my, is that Delilah de Wanton? Sure is. Oh, Mama's still got it. I don't know how anybody could leave that for some young model bitch. 100%. I couldn't agree more. And she's so much better looking than her daughter. It was the best acting of my career. It was the worst acting of his career. Eventually, Barbara remarried again, but still remains quite bitter to this day about the fling that led to the rewrite. He was a charming enough boy, but he had a fundamental lack of stamina. I'm a woman who quite frankly has the energy and sexual bravado of a small stallion horse. If I cannot find a man to satiate that part of moi, which is French, then he's on his ass on the curb. I have seen many men come and go, often going almost as quickly as they came. Do you get it? Yeah, I got it. Wendy's first job on set that day was calming Barbara down. I mean, yeah, eventually we bowed down and gave her what she wanted, but in that moment, I needed Wendy to take care of her. This was, of course, Wendy Cruz, who had been brought in to punch up the jokes of the original Curtis script. Wendy Cruz. Barbara was that sort of old Hollywood dame who sounded like she smoked cigarettes from birth and drank dry gin like it was lemonade. Barbara's ideals were rather set in stone and certainly reminiscent of a very different era. She wasn't bigoted, she was just old-fashioned. Well, no, she was deeply bigoted. The only reason Lucio sent me to calm her down was because, in his words, we could bond over our nature. I think he meant pussies. Lucy O'Neill, feminist film critic in the early 2010s, wrote an article about the relationship between Barbara and Wendy. Wendy never admitted it publicly or privately for that matter, but in the 70s and 80s, every single woman who put pen to paper was influenced greatly by Barbara. She was a pioneer and an icon, and anybody who didn't acknowledge that does not understand film nor television history. She broke the glass ceiling, and they have the honor of walking through that glass. No, I have never held Barbara Hooper up as a Lucille or Carol-like figure. As a matter of fact, it's very well reported that whenever she could, Barbara would avoid hiring female writers. For the explicit purpose that she stated often, that she didn't think women were funny enough. Bar herself, of course. I aided Barbara, and we had some good times on set. But I completely believe that for the whole time, she thought I was Lucio's assistant. Barbara saw the relationship somewhat differently. She adored me. The woman waited on every word I uttered. We had a swell time on that film. Uh, Wendy was a little lesbian, wasn't she? Harriet Lumet. Barbara did believe completely that Wendy was Lucio's assistant. She was completely astounded when I told her she basically wrote the entire script. She told me that she had regrets about this, and if she knew that she wasn't just an assistant, then she wouldn't have spent much of her time verbally abusing her. Wendy remembers this abuse from Barbara. Barbara had a complete disdain for assistants of every kind. 
Barbara, in actuality, had a disdain for anybody who wasn't an actor, writer, or director. Barbara used to have this huge bag that was like Mary Poppins, and it was filled with china, plates, and cups, and all that sort of thing. And she would often go about completely unprovoked and hurl these items at cameramen, runners, craft service people, you know, shouting things like, This is a real plate. You don't know what a real plate is. I asked a friend who worked on the TV show with her, you know, what was all that about? And he said to me, Plates? At least it's not bricks anymore. As her career continued into the 90s, Barbara's antics became even more violent. This was candid audio taken from the set of Robo Wars Final Battle. What the fuck, man? I don't come to your set and pull lights down and shit. You're walking through here. You're walking through this set. La-dee-da, la-dee-da. Why don't you fucking understand? What the fuck are you even doing? I was checking the camera. Oh, good for you. How was it? Was it super, super-duper Gary Cooper? Because it's fucking useless now. Please stop. Hey, bitch, I'm not the one fucking yelling. I'm on my movie here. You're being a baby. I don't want to see it again, ever. We are the gold standard. I have people calling me at night. Everybody is asking me what to do. This is Mary Todd the movie. This is a big deal. This is huge. Miss Hooper, this is the set of Robo Wars Final Battle. Really? Yeah. My bad, guys. You're doing great work. Keep it up. Where the fuck am I, then? 10.20 a.m. <laughs> It was around this time that the press team suddenly became horrendously ill and began vomiting all over the tennis court, where they had been set up to sit and wait in the boiling heat of the Florida sun, eating sushi that was later found to have also been sat in the boiling Florida sun for that whole week. The entire press team became violently ill. Silver linings, Daisy. They only got to see the first couple of hours. The real bad shit started after that. 11 a.m. It was around then that the ambulance arrived and took away the press team. But as the ambulance was pulling out, that's when Jimmy and Billy both arrived. I couldn't get my car in because of Jimmy's car and I really wanted a good parking space. Billy was attempting blindly to try and usurp my natural position to get a good parking space. So I turned my engine off. Once I saw Billy stop his car, I stopped mine. And I've never been a stubborn man. I'm a very passive man. I hate any brand of turmoil or the like. With the two cars parked firmly in the entranceway to the tennis club, the ambulance was unable to leave. Oh, boo-hoo! Some paramedic has to work another couple of hours because of a small feud. These actors have long, tough days. These paramedics should see what they have to do for a living. One of the press team died in the ambulance because they couldn't get into the hospital in time for a stomach pump. You know the old joke about lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> What'd you call it? A good start? Yes, I do. Well, I got a very similar joke about journalists and sushi. Take a wild guess what the punchline is. A good start? Wait, how'd you... Have you heard it before? I eventually left my car parked right there in the entrance. Jimmy, an unoriginal hack did the same. I could not make two leads fighting. I also knew that if anything happened, Billy would break Jimmy in half. So I called in some favors. Lucio called in these favors with a local Floridian branch of the Viking Angels, a slightly more violent version of the Hells Angels. Only slightly. 
These were the guys that got brought in to break up the Hell's Angels at Altamont. But these were fun guys and they owed me a favor. What favor was that? Have you ever heard of the Law Against Cult Bike Group's Appendix 785? No. Have you ever heard of the man who proposed that legislation? Martin Juffy? The one who died in that car crash? That's the one. Jimmy really was the most insufferably annoying individual I have ever met in my entire life. The man was genuinely that annoying. Billy won't admit it, but he was on edge because he was once again fresh out of rehab. I could admit that I was on edge because I was out of rehab, but I set up an easy rule for me that was working great. See, whenever I was making a film, I could do whatever I wanted. Coke, speed, whiskey, glue, those little candy cigarettes, I'm a whore for them. Whatever I wanted. But the minute we wrapped, well, no, the minute after the wrap party, I would immediately head back into rehab. Do a couple of weeks, swap a couple of quarts of blood, and head back out onto the next shoot. What rehab let you swap blood? It was less so a rehab, more so a Malaysian village. Me and Hopper set it up. We could do whatever we wanted. Chevy would come down. It actually kind of backfired because naturally, with all the biggest addicts of Hollywood in one place, it became the best fucking party of our lives. Weirdly enough, coincidentally, that was the exact same time of the famous Malaysian chlamydia outbreak. Who knew? 11.24 a.m. 53 seconds into the 24th minute. The biking angels arrive and begin to hunt for Billy and Jimmy, who no longer can be found. They literally disappeared the minute they got out of the cars. So I immediately sent the angels to go and find them. Did you not help? I was busy. Doing what? Hiding from Milton and Stephen. And Milton's wife. Milton's wife, Helena Naaman, recalls attempting to find Lucio. Well, everybody was bloody well furious, weren't they? I couldn't believe it myself. This glorious ode to a man's life had been turned into this outrageous-ass picture. Also, Milton was rather furious because I was in America with him for a Broadway double bill production of two of Pinter's one acts, The Long Shaft and Mountain Talking Cattleman. Milton was up for a role himself, but was locked into this picture. So you can quite understand I feel his natural fury. Don't you think, dear? But what was he going to do when he found Lupine? I think his original conception was to gut the spineless bastard. I actually quite enjoyed the whole running around thing. It was like Scooby-Doo, you know, the dog and they solve crimes. Yes, I know what Scooby-Doo is. So we had those three hunting for me. I had the bikers hunting for Jimmy and Billy before Billy killed Jimmy. Barbara and Wendy were off discussing the lady matters of the script. And Maurice was nowhere to be found yet either. It wasn't even midday yet. And unbeknownst to any of them, the wind was picking up too. From 12 a.m. onwards, things began to pick up a horrid pace and the events of the rest of the day began to unravel and unravel more and more. I'd been given a weather warning, but I'd never trusted weathermen. They say it's gonna rain, it never rains. So when it came to a 95% verified tornado possibility, I had to take it with a pinch of salt. 12.15, Maurice shows up. Blackout drunk, seriously dosed up on something. I had completely forgotten we were shooting that day. To be frank, I completely forgot about the film. Look, man, I was fucked. That lousy French bastard shows up with one of those small, tiny Super 8 cameras or whatever the shit. Comes over to me, says he doesn't want to shoot normally. He wants to shoot it experimentally. 
I said, here's an experiment. I put my foot in your ass and we see if you can direct that then. I said it's unorthodox, but uh, I'll try anything once. <laughs> this guy was blackout fucked up something good and he kept ranting about Catherine Deneuve saying she fucked the marriage he had. Basically, we were at dinner and I said, God, I wish I could fuck Catherine Deneuve. You look like a hag. She's so beautiful. So yes, I do blame Catherine for the end of my marriage. So I put him in a chair, threw a bucket of cold water over him, and gave him a camera. He wasn't the director that day. He was a tripod. One twenty. Milton, Stephen, and Helena find Lucio as he deals with Maurice. When we found Lucio at long last to confront him, we had bigger things at hand. Maurice had had a stroke, and we had to try our best to get him to a hospital. I had no stroke. Yeah, that was me. Maurice was knocked out of sleep, but I needed to get rid of Stephen and fucking Charles and Diana over there, so I got some tape from the crew desk and pulled down half of Maurice's face. I honestly could not believe they fell for it. We all got in the car and left Lucio at the club. We rushed Maurice to hospital as quickly as we could. Next thing I know, I wake up in a hospital bed with a catheter of my dingly pinkly and I'm knocked on all sorts of morphine. It was fucking great. So that was them sorted. But then some big dude called Elmo comes over to me. I say something about the puppet and he punches me in the face. So I go, what the fuck? He says, where's Gerard Depardieu? I say, what the fuck? He punches me again. I say, what the fuck? He says, the French guy. I say, Gerard Depardieu, what the fuck? Fuck, who is Gerard Depardieu? He says, Cyrano the Bergerac. I say, Cyrano de what the fuck? He punches me again. I say, you Elmo Muppet motherfucker. He lays me out good. And this goes on for an hour. You know his name is Gerard. Yeah, but in English, it's Gerald. I came to understand that Elmo, my dealer, came to the set for cash and was met by Lucio. Of course, Lucio did not know that I pretended to be Gerard Depardieu to get better deals because... Elmo was a huge fan of French cinema. Well, no, he was a huge fan of Gerard Depardieu. So I would put on a red rag and pretend and get good cock deals. But this past time I had no money. So I said, follow me to the set and I will get you a check. So I write this Elmo son of a bitch out a check. But then comes the kicker. He says, I don't want no cash no more. I say, oh, why do you want them? He says, a roll. So I take the camera and I just sit him there and I say to the guy, say whatever comes to your mind. I never thought I'd get out. Never in all my life. The year was 1972. The summer was hot. Sweat on my back, sweat on my neck, sweat on my ass, sweat in my ass. Lots of sweat, you get the picture. I was a little boy then. In so many ways, I'm a little boy now. But I don't admit it often. I said it once, I'm a little boy. The dentist slinked away. I'm a stunted adult. I'm a dealer. I deal drugs, but I also deal with pain. Deal with others, never my own. The streets, these streets haunt me. It's hard being a saint in this city. It's also hard being a drug dealer named Elmo. The only solace I find is when I'm alone with Depargeau. I close my eyes. I see myself on the beach with Gerard. 
I'm in his arms. I'm alone. I sing with him. I cry with him. I make love in my dreams to Gerard Depardieu. I'm no longer alone. We are one in the same. I am not Elmo. I am Gerard Depardieu. The door cracks. I hear a whisper. I hear the sound of wind. I feel the sweat. I am alone once more. Then I hear footsteps. Hello, is there anybody in here? It's Gerard. Dreams do come true. It was the greatest acting I've ever seen in my entire life, and here I was peddling crap for the masses. I anonymously released that footage, and we won best short film at the Academy Awards that year. You shot the short film "Song for Elmo." That's the first short film ever released by the Criterion Collection as its own disc. It's the most beautiful five minutes I've ever seen. Thanks. We got the Oscar, which was good, but then again, that was the same Oscars where they put me in the memoriam, followed by the comment, "We hope." Did you ever work with Elmo again? No, he kicked me in the groin, took my wallet, slipped on the water bucket I used on Maurice, and died. Fresh balls is dedicated to him. One thirty-five. During all of this, Cecilia Seward is just writing on a notepad in the corner. But we will get to that later. Why don't you just get to it now? Are you still fucking here? I saw her writing. I thought she was doodling. I mean, come on. God doesn't let a woman look like that and be a skilled writer. That's just unfair. That's why Virginia Woolf got given that nose. One fifty-five. By the time the bikers find Jimmy and Billy, they are completely fine, and the argument is through. We were blowing rails butt naked in the sauna. I'd never taken cocaine before because of my allergies, but now I get it. It was the only time his company was tolerable. So now the bikers were giving me shit because they didn't have anybody to beat up, so I had to pay them off. I let them be security for the set. By the end of the first day, they'd already beaten three random club members with their rackets. Not the members' rackets. The bikers had brought their own. When Lucio found Billy and Jimmy indulging in cocaine, there was only one thing he could do for the sake of the film. I joined in. Some people are funny with coke. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. Nobody likes to admit it because boo-hoo, people are dying all over, and societal oppression leads to a disparity of prison time. Look, I've always felt the same thing about coke. A street kid gets arrested, gonna do some time. He got out three years from now just to commit more crime. A businessman is caught with 24 kilos. He's out on bail and out of jail, and that's the way it goes. Lucio, that's just the lyrics from White Lines. Doesn't make it less true. Three o'clock. Billy and Jimmy start arguing again. This time, fueled by the coke that had previously mellowed them. If I remember rightly, the argument was over our favorite impoverished '70s slash '80s band or performer. I was fighting for Bruce and Huey, and that dumb shit was fighting for Billy and Hall and Oates. I said that's three people. I only had two, and I wanted to fuck him up. Fortunately for me, the bikers came and broke it up instead. Then took to beating Jimmy senseless. 
I kept slipping because I was naked to my ass in a sauna. Every time I tried to get away, I kept slipping. It was goddamn tiles that was the problem. I've never liked tiles. Tiles just as a concept infuriates me. He would always do this thing where he would say a pretty basic statement, but would then continue to pick out a single thing and just go on and on about how annoying he found this one particular thing. We have half an hour of audio of him talking about tiles. The only reason Jimmy is still alive was because at that exact moment, the tornado hit. It completely destroyed the tennis club. That fucking Nazi owner won a court case against me for damages because he cited it as an act of God. The first time a human could be blamed for an act of God. We were in the Bible Belt and he told them about the coke and the prostitutes and they just ate it all up. There was prostitutes? Tons. I never run a set without at least five. So what was Lucio to do? Well, I called for Hardy, and I told him what had happened, and how we needed a new set, a whole new tennis club, and I was scouting one in Philly, which would work, and if Hardy could donate some cash, but he didn't want to do it. So by the end of the day, around 6.45 p.m. 6.45 p.m. Yeah, uh, 6.45 p.m., at that time, that same day, Fahadi had already broke ground on a whole new tennis complex in Iraq. It's still the first time in movie history where Iraq has doubled for Miami, Florida. I should have known at that point that perhaps I was getting a little indebted to Fahadi. But he was a skilled persuader. I'd say to him, Fahadi, my brother, I can't give you this sort of cash. And he would say, do you like your right leg? He was a very skilled persuader. Piece of advice. You do not want to be in the pocket of the world's leading terrorist. And that... That was just the first day. You have been listening to Out of Bounds, the true story of a true Hollywood true disaster. Episode 3, First Service at Bat. Directed and edited by Thomas Carruthers. Written by Thomas Carruthers with additional material by Rian Holmes and William Leggetter. This episode's cast, Ava Robinson as Daisy Goldman, David Whiting as Billy Stone and Johnny Knoxville, Jay Reef as Milton Hopkins, Jasmine Dalton as Lucy O'Neill, Kirsten Fraser as Helena Naiman, Molly Jennings as Harriet Lamette, Meg Bradley as Wendy Cruz, Rian Holmes as Barbara Hooper, Sam Mandagomi as Richard Fonday, Thomas Carruthers as Lucio Lapine, Jimmy Zidane and Gerhard Roth, William Atterton as Stephen Curtis, William Legatera as Maurice Luc Lepet, with Oleon Standosen as Shirley Pisser, Francesca Harvey and Nathan Groves-Wilson as local man and woman. Harvey Fiddler as lighting technician. Bethany Gabitas as Elmo. And Andrew Michael Ragg as the voice of the CFC. This show has original music by Alex Reeve and Mike Whiting. Further music curation by Thomas Carruthers and Alex Reeve acquired under a Creative Commons license. This show is produced by Rian Holmes, with artwork as well as the theme for the Classic Film Channel by William Leggetter. Certain sound effects performed by the Royal Court Theatre Vocal Effects and Foley Society. We thank you sincerely for listening and tune in for the next episode, The Producers, not the film or the musical or the film of the musical. And that was just the first day. We blew half of our budget and didn't shoot a single scene. But we'd had bad first days before. I tried to make Moby Dick in the late 70s and first day we killed the whale. I misplaced my watch, and it was a nice watch, and it got to a point where there was only one place that it could be, 
in the whale. So, yeah, we had to gut the thing out. Everybody says it was a cruel and inhumane thing for us to do to a real whale. And when I couldn't find my watch, I understood what people were trying to tell me. Well, in actuality, the watch was at home. I wasn't wearing it that day. I forgot. Oh, yeah, we blew that fucker up good. Sky high, blubber like rain. It all worked out for the best anyhow, because that ended up as the first film Andy Circus appeared in as a monster. But back then, we didn't have that technology, so we just painted him gray and watched him flop around. It wasn't until Pulp Fiction, when I saw that bit where Bruce Willis leaves his watch at home, that I realized the real danger I was in.